National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Newbar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. So both Matt and I work for the National Park Service, uh, and specifically for the Southern Arizona Office. Um, we're both archaeologists, and in our jobs, we get to help lots of parks in, in Arizona and, uh, and also throughout the Southwest. So that makes us lucky enough to see archaeology throughout the state and throughout the Southwest. And this podcast uh, is a growth of that excitement um, that we get to be out in the field seeing all the different types of archaeology and all the different types of um, tools and the methodology that the National Park Service uses and our partners use in investigating the past. So this podcast is um, here to help share our enthusiasm for this subject with you. So uh, we want this podcast to give you sort of a behind the scenes view um, of how National Park Service archaeology works because a lot of times you may go to a park uh, and there's archaeology occurring all around you but you may not see it. Uh, so we want to provide you with information uh, directly from the source by interviewing National Park Service archaeologists, university researchers, uh, and tribal folks, uh, so you can hear their voice and uh, get a sense for how the National Park Service does archaeology. We also want to hear back from you. So if you're listening to this podcast from um, an aggregator like iTunes, please go to our website at www.nps.gov soar, for SOAR, that's for the Southern Arizona Office. Um, that's where our podcast is hosted, and you can uh, send us an email or listen to the podcast directly there. We'll also have links, any links that are mentioned in our interviews. We'll, uh, we'll make sure that they're there for you as well. So, to start off the podcast, this episode focuses on the origins of the historic preservation movement. This is partially because this month, August, the National Park Service is celebrating Citizen Science Month. So we invited Frank McBannaman, former chief archaeologist for the National Park Service and current executive director of the Center for Digital Antiquity, to share those beginnings with us. The Center for Digital Antiquity preserves archaeological information and ensures that it is accessible. One tool that digital antiquity uses is TDAR, or the Digital Archaeological Record. TDAR is an online database, a repository for cultural resource records, that makes accessible digital files and not just a bibliographic record. It's used at all scales, from academics researching large projects, to art historians looking at pottery collections, to even public education. In his role with the National Park Service, Frank was instrumental in working with teams and the Nationwide Maintenance Program to define archaeological sites as maintained. This allowed the stabilization and preservation projects of these sites that we at the National Park Service preserve to qualify for different funding sources and also helped park-based archaeologists to put in place cyclical preservation programs to address chronic issues such as erosion and weathering. Frank also helped them think about resource management as a collaborative method. He also foresaw the need for a nationwide archaeological database to facilitate the inventory of archaeological resources and thus helped affect uh, the birth of the Archaeological Sites Man Management Information System, or ASMIS, that we continue to use today. Before the interview, Matt and I will discuss historic preservation in action at his site, and after, we'll answer some frequently asked questions from you.
So before we get into our interview with Frank McManaman, uh, Matt and I wanted to discuss a little bit about historic preservation in action. So uh, Matt, I know you have your office at Tuzigoot National Monument and serve as the um, chief of resources there and have long served as the archeologist. Um, what do you and your crew uh, do at Tuzigoot and can you tell us about historic preservation there? Sure, so we have a crew uh, that consists of an archeologist and some preservation masons. Uh, and their job is really to uh, do preservation work at the site. So they're uh, repairing the walls and uh, really protecting what archeologists would call the integrity of the site. So protecting the information that is uh, part of that site so that it can be studied uh, by future archeologists and also uh, so that information uh, can be used in future interpretations of the site. Nice. So how did we get to um, this point today with historic preservation? Where did Tuzigoot come from? So Tuzigoot is uh, an ancestral Native American site. Um, it was built and occupied uh, sometime between the 1100s and the 1400s, uh, but it was excavated in the 1930s as part of a depression era project. So. Uh, folks from the local community of Clarkdale and Jerome uh, who were out of work during the Depression um, were actually hired to help archaeologists excavate the site. Uh, the idea being that it could be turned into a tourist location uh, that would create revenue for the local community. So even though they wouldn't have had the term citizen science back in the 30s, um, Tuzigoot really is a homegrown uh, tourist and archaeological site. It is, absolutely. So Tuzigoot is a, a really good example of a local community uh, taking pride in its history, uh, but then um, promoting that history for the benefit of the community. So in a lot of ways, it's what we might think of today as uh, heritage tourism. Um, it's, that sort of, it's an early example of that. So there's sort of two things at play. Uh, if we use Tuzigoot as an example, um, the National Park Service is protecting the physical remains of the site, um, but then also making sure that uh, those remains um, are safe for visitation and that they convey all of the information that we want visitors to get about the site. So they're educational and they provide an experience. Well, thanks, Matt. I'm really excited to hear what Frank McMahon has to say about the um, early days of historic preservation. So let's get to his interview. This is Matt Gubard in Charlotte Hart. We're here with Dr. Frank McManaman. He's the Executive Director of Digital Antiquity and former Chief Archaeologist for the National Park Service. Hey, Frank. Hi. Hi. Nice, Good nice to be here. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. So this, uh, this episode is talking about uh, uh, sort of history of preservation. And for a lot of listeners, uh, they may be familiar with historic preservation through the National Register of Historic Places or through... Uh, any of the historic preservation laws or regulations that mm -hmm. are out there. Um, but what they might not know is that a lot of the sort of early historic preservation efforts were actually funded or planned by private citizens or, or private groups. Um, so at what point did the federal government become involved in, and why do you think that was? Um, I'm going to, the story, this is the story of the Antiquities Act. <laughs> you, can, you can read all about it in a very interesting, about 60-page um, 
publication called The Antiquities Act of 1906 by Ron, Ron Lee, Ronald F. Lee, who was a Park Service historian and a official. He was one of the regional directors in Philadelphia at one point in time. Um, and uh, the way he tells the story, which I think is, it's certainly engaging and, uh, and I think correct, is that the notion of the need to protect American antiquities goes back into the 19th century, into the, at least the last quarter of the 19th century. And it was that certain private citizens <clears throat> who were interested in antiquities, which were beginning to become known because, uh, and this really, a lot of this happened in the Southwest, not only in the Southwest, but in the Southwest, antiquities, certain kinds of them, which you know better than I do, I've seen more of them, they stick up above the ground. So people can see them. They're not invisible, they're not below the ground. And, uh, you know, some people, um, uh, as more Euro-Americans began to move into the Southwest to colonize the Southwest for agriculture, for ranching, for minerals, uh, in, you know, to run railroads uh, from the Mississippi Valley to California, uh, they began to encounter these kinds of things. They saw petroglyphs, they saw uh, graffiti on uh, rock faces, they saw um, cliff drawings, what, what we now call cliff drawings, and they, you know, they were interested. What's going on? And some of them were more than interested. Some of them, particularly people who were homesteading, kind of needed resources. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, you know, you've lived here. Yes. It's, it's hard to find a big log to build a house. It was hard a thousand years ago, and it still is. And so um, some people began taking, not just you know, for as a as a as a uh, a trophy or something, or a, you know, a memento. Some people began taking rocks and uh, structural timbers and things like that out of these ancient structures to build their their contemporary things. So, for for whatever reason, um, people began to notice that these antiquities, and that's why they, that's why the act got the name it did, were being. Uh, in some cases destroyed, in some cases taken away for reuse, and they became concerned about it. And um, in the in this, as I say, in the, the last quarter, last third of the 19th century, groups of private citizens began to come together to say, "Well, what, what can we do about this?" And 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 of course, they knew a lot of this was happening on government land. These were public lands. Uh, and what could they do about it? So, one of the the first stories that uh, that Lee's history talks about is a group in Boston, uh, and Boston plays an important role in this. Some of the citizens uh, in Boston, uh, Francis Parkman, the American historian, Frederick Putnam, an early archaeologist who was instrumental also in saving some of the ancient sites in the Midwest, some of the mound sites there, Serpent Mound in particular, uh, he had a direct role there, uh, got together with, with other you know, prominent Boston Brahmin people, you know, family mm -hmm. people, the establishment for sure, when there really was one, and uh, they began to do things like uh, write to their senator 
in Massachusetts and say, this is a terrible thing that's happening out here. What, what can you do to, to we, we want to save these things. And so there were a couple episodes of sort of general uh, sense of the Senate or, you know, uh, they weren't really laws as much as proclamations. And this is, you know, we want to protect these things and they need to be, they need to be, uh, we need to be cognizant of their importance and stuff like that. Um, uh, Casa Grande Ruin uh, was one very specific instance where this particular problem came to came to the fore, and the the Boston grouping uh, asked its senator, I think George Hoare, H O A R, I think, uh, at the time, to actually um, have that have the the, uh, the quarter section that that. The, the, the big house, is, where the big house is, and the other things that are close enough to it, set aside so that it wasn't. It was so it was public lands, but it was set aside for special protection. And I think Benjamin Harrison was the president, and he did that. And then he also, or some the Senate, maybe the Senate passed uh, uh, an appropriation for preservation of the ruins. So that's but that's where the Antiquities Act. Gets its start, and it, it. Uh, so there are certain phases. There's this this early phase with it involves the Casa Grande ruins, and then more general statements about uh, take care of these things, and you know how are we going to do that, and this is a problem. And then finally, about 1900, um, people begin to to actually put together to draft. Uh, uh, statutory language, and um, the uh, and of course this is uh, just around the time when who becomes president, President Theodore Roosevelt, mm -hmm. and uh, while the progressive era of American politics got its start before Roosevelt, he was he was really keen on progressivism. So. Uh, you know, government could do good things in those days. We might not agree with it, everything it did. We wouldn't agree with everything that government did. But people saw um, using science and using history and using knowledge or what passed for knowledge at the time as uh, as an important thing to take advantage of in in managing different sorts of resources. So you have Gifford Pinchot with forests, right? right? Uh, we're going to conserve forests. We're going to reuse forests. We're going to come up with a sustainable way of c ensuring that America has enough lumber. Basically, is what they were doing. So right. Roosevelt starts creating when he becomes president after McKinley's death. Um, sets, starts setting aside forest reserves uh, with that as the rationale. Although I think a lot of people, even at the time, would argue some of these forest reserves they don't have a lot of timber on them. You know what. What's really going on here? And this was this was a very progressive kind of approach. Well, you know, we manage the public lands. We sort of know what's valuable. We think we know what's valuable. We think you know well, there are some problems that we could solve if we could just make it so. And um, and then that and so that becomes sort of the part of the kernel of the of of the of what ultimately becomes the antiquity sex. Part of the text from 1900 survives. In the final versions, and it goes through, I don't know, three depends on how you count them, you know, three or four iterations before it gets to 
1906. And by 1906, there are a couple of primary provisions. One is what we now refer to as the National Monument Authority. And the second, I think really important, I mean, National Monument Authority is great. I'm a big fan of National Monument and that authority, the way it's been used. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I you for sure. Uh, from 1906 on, um, and uh, but the section three, which most people don't know, even exists, m- makes some very important um, commitments or or policies. I, I guess you might call them about cultural. What we now talk about as cultural resources. One thing it says. And it's, it's only talking about antiquities in this, um, and you know, objects of scientific interest. I mean, that that litany of things that the Antiquities Act covers, whether it applies, whether it's the National Monuments sec- section or this or Section Three. Section Three talks about regulate. It's, it, they don't use the word regulate, but it's the permits, requiring permits to remove antiquities, objects of antiquity from public lands. That's regulation. Uh, and what it says is, what it, the implication there is that these are important resources. The government is concerned about this and wants to be part of the process. We may not be sending government archaeologists, because there weren't any, out to do the taking away, but we want to know who's going to do it. We want to make sure that they do it in a way that is up to the scientific standards of the age. And um, the results are, I think the wording is, for the benefit of scientific museum and educational institutions. Right. Key, right? This isn't permitting somebody to go make a coal mine or cut down a forest. It's permitting, and the end product is public interpretation and care of the, the resource as a historic or archaeological or cultural or natural resource. To me, that's really foundational uh, in terms of what we do here. And it, and, you know, and I think you can draw a straight line from the Antiquities Act through the 1935 Historic Sites Act to the National Register or the National Historic Preservation Act, which, yeah. you, which is what we all kind of know and love and battle with on a daily basis these (laughs) days. So so Section 3 of the Antiquities Act, I think, is really is that kind of a foundational thing because it shows a general interest in these types of resources. A public, these are a public resource. It's legitimate for the government representing the people of the United States to be concerned about it. And here's here's how we're going to be concerned about it. We're going to have a policy that you can't remove them unless you have the right end product or end point in mind. And when you re- re- remove them, you have to do it in a way that is sort of up to snuff in technical uh, techniques and methods and procedures and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So sort of the beginning of archaeology and preservation for the, for the public good, but we also talked earlier about sort of st- trying to standardize way that information is collected and reported, which is something that we struggle with now, but that's really sort of an early effort to try to do that, to make sure that everybody's sort of on the same page with how they collect their information and report it. Exactly. So, uh, 
so the Antiquities Act is a good is a good thing, and and it it uh, it still it still has relevance, I think. And I hope the National Monuments part of it doesn't get um, downgraded or um, changed. Um, but I really hope nobody messes around with Section Three, <laughs> or just decides you know to throw out the whole law. So, well, so that gets to kind of one of the other. Uh, questions is as you mentioned the Antiquities Act gives the president the power to establish national monuments without congressional approval um, that's been sort of a contentious topic recently uh, the, the new Trump administration relatively early uh, I think in like April or March or April um, uh, did a review of, of national monuments that have been created since the Clinton administration and then yeah uh, and a lot of them are are here in the in the West, um, and so I, I think you know the president was. I, I think he referred to it as uh, contributing to a federal land grab, and and this idea that it's a um, it, it's a, a overreach of the executive branch. Um, but has has the has the Antiquities Act always been a contentious political topic? Um. The issue of uh, size of national monuments was one of the issues that was debated or at least discussed in Congress when um, the the final text of the of the law was going through, and probably even before that. And there was some trepidation by um, Western, typically Western, political representatives that this would. Um, would result in a federal land grab. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was certainly that point of view that, that this would be a problem. Um, I think, I think I don't know exactly who came up with the phrasing, um, you know, as large as needed to manage the resource or whatever, I'm, I'm not getting that quite right. But that's, that's the, the key phrase that does, has been interpreted by the courts to give the executive a wide range of discretion in, mm -hmm. in size. Um, but I think it would, it's certainly fair to say and historically accurate to say that the size size was a, a question at the, at the very beginning, but you know it did pass. So the you know, House and the Senate both passed it with that language with that language in it and they rely upon the discretion and the knowledge of the executive and how that how that's carried out. I think from a from a scientific or and an, or uh, historical perspective, the one that we might have as archaeologists or historians or even historical architects, is that since 1906, size has become important in the things we do too. We look at ecosystems now. This is, of course, yeah. isn't just us. I mean, natural not all natural scientists really take that at least see see science as the natural world is fitting into it ecosystem kind of framework. And so, um, you know, it, in, it, thank goodness there's that leeway there. So the the president can declare a, a, a monument that, you know, is the size of a relatively postage stamp size. And if you're familiar with the African burial ground in New York City, you'll know that that, you know, that is kind of postage size Right for New yeah. York, certainly for out here, 
Yeah. It, you wouldn't even see it, you know. So, uh, and he thought that was appropriate. Uh, this, was, this was George Bush, who I don't think anybody ever thought would use the Antiquities Act. Turns <laughs> out, George Bush, in, until Obama passed him by in, in terms of his marine national monuments, created the biggest marine national monument that had ever existed, and I don't know, by two or three times the, the, yeah, the, acreage the square is acreage of, of any of the terrestrial monuments that Clinton so, presidents have lots of way, reasons they do things and ways they do things, and uh, I would say in my reading of the history and then my own professional experience so far, it's it's been to the good, and I think I think the ones that Obama created will prove to be prescient and more valuable than other more maybe more immediate. Economic gains that might be possible from someplace like Bears Ears, and then you know, in a longer in a longer term, the value that it would that it has for Americans and for the local uh, population. History, I mean, history shows that, that that's the case. If you look at the ones that, that have been created up to this point, so hopefully. So there are, uh, I think, a hundred and. 25 national monuments. Um, some of those are National Park Service managed. Mm -hmm. uh, others are managed um, through the uh, Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management uh, most often. So I think they comprise about 100 million acres is, is what I saw. So it's quite a large land mass. Um, I think, and you mentioned this kind of early on in the, the sort of history of the Antiquities Act, uh, Monuments were usually relatively small, uh, several acres or, or, or a, you know, a couple hundred acres maybe. Um, one of the largest national monument designations is several mil uh, 56 million acres. I think is one of the largest. So that and that that was with uh, Carter and, and um, Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, so there have been larger ones. Uh, so the concept of of as you mentioned, sort of uh, what constitutes uh, the smallest area compatible is, has changed over time. Um, but I think the idea behind the National Monument ha hasn't changed all that much. And it's interesting to think about the idea that the Antiquities Act, which as you mentioned is, um, the date for that is 1906, and the, national, the establishment of the National Park Service, yep. uh, which is 1916, happened within a 10 year period. And you kind of touched on this a little bit with uh, progressive politics, but can you talk a little bit more about um, in what ways uh, is the creation of the Antiquities Act and the National Park Service related, do you think? Uh, is, there, is there a connection there, um, political or, or, or otherwise? I think there's a, um, I think there's a cultural and a administrative connection. I think, um, I think, you might say cultural slash political, that um, the creation of the National Park Service as an entity to manage the national parks, really, which is what they focused on in in creating in creating in identifying the need for a National Park Service. Um, Stephen Mather and Horace Albright, the two movers there, Mather in particular, as a political. 
operator and very wealthy person, um, saw the need for what at that time I think passed for professional management as opposed to Yellowstone being managed by the military, by the U.S. Army, or, or any of them. So Mather and, and, and uh, Hor uh, Horace Albright really was the kind of the doer, Mather's doer, uh, fixer, right. uh, uh, showrunner, what do they <laughs> call them? some of these things? Runner, park runner. Um, you know, saw the need for professional management. And I think that actually is harkens back to the progressive, progressive era. That not so much they weren't really selling biology. They weren't selling uh, archaeology or historic structures. They were selling scenery. But they were seeing that, you know, things were, you know, the way that things were being done in Yellowstone was different from what was going on in Yosemite and what was happening in Rainier or Sequoia. And really, this needed, we really needed some consistency here. And, and a certain kind, and they needed, these things needed to be valued in certain ways. And so, um, so I think this might, you know, the, who knows where the progressive end era actually stops? You know, is it World War One? Well, that was, you know, like you know, that happened. The United States got into the war like a week before the Park Service was created, or something like that. There's some very close that, you know, instead of people suddenly getting on the Park Service bandwagon, they were sort of detoured over to right. you know the domestic programs and you know, let's you know, let's go over there and. You know, care of things so um, but I do think it's 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 administratively and politically and to some extent culturally comes out of the progressive approach to resource management and the need for professionalism and competence and science in in doing that doing those sorts of things and comes out of the constituency like you were saying uh, in the last half of the 19th century <coughs> with letter writing you know the story goes that Mather you know, was this wealthy businessman in Chicago and writes a letter to the Secretary of Interior complaining about the lack of competence and, yeah. and gets an invitation to come fix it. And yeah. he does. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, it's very much the same this Boston Brahmin. Yeah. You know, sort of a new, the next generation, which things spread out of Boston. I mean, Chicago gets, and even Los Angeles. You know, right. Albright's, Albright's from California. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it, but it's the same, same kind of level exactly. of, of attention. Um, I really I don't know the extent to which the national monuments as a group were a, 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 a large part of that argument. They could easily have been. I just I'm just I'm either not remembering or or uh, or, or it wasn't you know it hasn't been looked into. But um, Hal Rothman's book about the national monuments mm -hmm. would be the place to find to look for, for hints of that. And one of the things he points out is that the national monuments that were brought under the uh, wing of the new National Park Service for management really were kind of uh, stepchildren. You know, they weren't really... They weren't quite pretty enough to be parks. Yeah, or <laughs> big enough. Yeah. And, and so scenery, I think, really was the, the sort of driving... I think uh, Dick Sellers makes that point in his book about natural resource management. In the Park Service was this wasn't about biology or ecology or things. This was about stunning scenery. Mm -hmm. T T R looking out over the Grand Canyon. 
Well, and I like to point out when I do outreach that all three of the national parks in Arizona, Grand Canyon, Saguaro, and Petrified Forest, all started out as national monuments. Yeah. You know, and under that Antiquities Act, and then wanted that status of being a park. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> really, I mean, thank God. T T R was T R in that, in the, at least in that instance. A lot yeah. of people don't like T R because he did some things that offend us now, or would have if, if he had, he wouldn't have been able to get away with them actually if he tried to do them now. But um, but but uh, having the the chutzpah to uh, use the Antiquities Act to declare the Grand Canyon a, a national monument. That was a good one. Yep. That was a good one. And the Supreme Court agreed eventually. TR was dead <coughs> for three or four years. Um, is, there a, is there a historical figure uh, associated with this preservation movement that, that you're particularly fond of? Well, clearly I'm fond of Teddy for some of the things he did, but I, he didn't, I don't think he. I think he did a lot of this stuff sort of on instinct and not, he, you know, I don't, I've looked around in general histories of Roosevelt and I haven't really found anything about archaeology or really even historic structures or things like that. Um, but for, I mean, I think he's, he's a, clearly an important figure with, with the Antiquities Act. Um, and then the other one, uh, we haven't talked at all about because he comes out along a little later, but he's related to the Antiquities Act is Jesse Nussbaum. Right. Who was the first, as best I can tell, the first NPS archaeologist, mm -hmm. first archaeologist hired by the NPS, not the first one to do work in a park. But, and he was superintendent at Mesa Verde, and he did a lot of public outreach. And then he, he really, most of his career, he was involved with uh, the Antiquities Act and that he was the kind of the liaison, represented the secretary um, in... Uh, I think in evaluating permit permittees, who people who um, you know go to come to interior and say, "Well, I want to do some archaeology in um, interior land, you know, BLM land, or general land office land at the time." And I think, and and he would one of his jobs was to go around and he would inspect how they were doing and you know make sure things were done done properly. Well, so so last question. Um, how can the, uh, or any suggestions on how the public can support historic uh, preservation efforts? You know, this one I actually wrote down three points. Oh, cool. One is um, they can get involved locally or regionally in land use planning. Uh, I just finished editing a book that has a chapter in it by Linda Mayrow and Bill Dooley. They've, mm -hmm. they've been part of a, of a regional and a local planning process that involves natural and cultural resources and you know ancient resources and historic cultural resources, sort of ongoing ranching and things like that. Right. And so uh, people can make their voices, if they think these are valuable resources, make their voices heard in that. And if they, if they have the inclination and the ability and the connections, get involved personally and local planning efforts, regional planning efforts, and if not, make sure that when they're voting for people at the local and the county and the regional level, not, not to mention national, that they have a sense that these people are ones that would support historic preservation kinds of kinds of activities. So, you know, pay attention as citizens would be one thing. And become informed about it. I mean, there are newsletters, there are blog posts, there are you know, the sort of outreach stuff that, that you are involved in, 
you know, stay tuned in that way. So that's one thing. Then they can also, as individuals, be good stewards. They might actually, again, this, you know, if they're if they're uh, so inclined and, and and you know, physically and and uh, in terms of where they're where they're living, become a site steward. Arizona's got a great program for site stewards. And even if they can't do it formally, you know, and you know, on a, you know, not be responsible for every month checking out sites or things like that. When they're out on the land, be responsible steward. So they see something, you know, don't pick it up necessarily. Make a note of where you found it. Take a picture. Everybody's got photos with the cameras with them nowadays. And, you know, let people know, like YouTube, when they get back to the visitor center or whatever, that they saw something and they thought it might be important. Maybe they saw something bad. You know, somebody dug a hole and there's bones scattered around or things like that. So. So that would be another thing, be good site stewards one way or the other. And then, in, in this is a much more general thing, recognize the value of uh, professionalism in public resource management and um, be willing to pay for it. Well, uh, so Frank, thanks for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I, okay. appreciate, I appreciate it very much. It was a lot of fun for me. Hope okay. it will be interesting to people. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Frank's interview really highlighted uh, the level of public involvement in historic preservation and the idea that uh, it's not just something that the government decided to do, it's something that small communities around the country, particularly in the West and Southwest, were really pushing for. They wanted the federal government to take a more active role in protecting and preserving archaeological sites and historic places. Yeah, so when I've done research into the history of the National Park Service and the history of our monuments and parks, I've always been you know, really just struck with the, um, the um, you know, fortitude and the, um, the tenacity that local communities had from Clarkdale in Arizona with Chuzigoot to um, the Colorado Cliff Dwellings Association that was formed by Virginia McClurg and Lucy Peabody to save Mesa Verde. You know, throughout the West, there were these small groups that really um, kind of came together and affected huge amounts of change for historic preservation. So now we'd like to start answering your questions. In the future, send us a letter, but for the moment, we're going to answer some questions that we get a lot. So when I'm out on the trails in a national park or national monument, I often get the question, um, why don't archaeologists for the National Park Service excavate anymore? What are we actually doing? Uh, Matt, do you have any comments on that? <laughs> sure. Uh, so... A lot of what we do is historic preservation. So uh, here in the Southwest, it's maintaining uh, a lot of the ancestral Pueblo ruins, for instance, uh, that you know, big architecture that, that requires a lot of, uh, I guess, repair work. Um, excavations, by their nature, are destructive. So you get a lot of information from excavations, but you're also destroying what archaeologists would call the context of those artifacts. Um, so uh, you lose a lot of information in the process. So because we have a preservation ethic in the Park Service, uh, we try to do as little harm as possible, and that means uh, staying away from excavations. Awesome. Do you get any um, questions about historic preservation when you're out actually doing work? 
Yeah, we get a lot of questions about sort of like what are you doing or, or why are you doing that or uh, sometimes if we have folks who uh, have done uh, masonry work, for example, they may have little technical pointers for us or something. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, we do get that a lot uh, and typically it seems like folks are uh, interested in, in learning a little bit more about it um, because it's something that they don't often associate with archaeology. I know I've definitely been out on the trail at Tuzigoot. We were talking about Tuzigoot earlier um, and seeing the masonry crew out there, and it does look like, um, you know, it looks like they're doing work you might do on your house. Yeah, absolutely, but it's, uh, it's a lot more than that. Um, it's a very specific type of masonry work. Uh, so um, there are a lot of components of it that are different than what you would do in your house. You have to take a lot of photographs and take a lot of notes and meticulously record uh, the materials that you use and, and how you're doing the work. And the idea there is that um, you're recording all that information for future managers that, that might want to learn more about the materials you used or, or how you applied them. Yeah, that's something I think that gets looked over a lot when we talk about historic preservation is all the notes that um, that we take. And um, sometimes we're living with a legacy of um, an archaeologist or a manager who didn't take a lot of notes. I know I've seen um, archaeological site cards that say the site is located, you know, 30 meters from the tree. And so who knows what, what tree that was. Yeah, archaeology, like sort of all sciences, is cumulative. So... Uh, you know, you're only really learning more if you, if you have good information about what was done in the past and uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So taking Definitely. good notes is, is super important. Cool. So this is our first podcast. So we were answering questions that we get on the trail, but we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions that you uh, would like us to answer, please email us. And the link to email us is on our website, www.nps.gov slash S-O-A-R. So that's for the National Park Service, Southern Arizona office. All right, so thanks for listening. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking to Rebecca Renteria uh, at the Linking Hispanic Heritage Through Archaeology program. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.